Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now we start with the big story this morning. Boris Johnson has denied telling aides that he'd rather see bodies pile high than impose a third lockdown. But the BBC, the Daily Mail and ITV have all quoted sources insisting that he did in fact say that. According to the Times newspaper, the Prime Minister was concerned about the economic harm that more Covid restrictions would cause. Johnson himself now is trying to move the debate back onto the post-pandemic reopening. A lot of this stuff that people are talking about is actually not what's uh, coming up on the, on the doorstep or the, the issues that people are raising uh, with me. What people want to know about is what is the government doing to get on uh, with our agenda to, to unite and level up across the country. But the Prime Minister is coming under increasing pressure with the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, also launching an inquiry into funding for renovations of Boris Johnson's Downing Street apartment. I don't think it's acceptable. I don't believe it is a common practice. I certainly don't think there's anything happening at the moment that's the equivalent. The head of the civil service also commented on the probe into who leaked the news of the second lockdown, saying the source may never be identified. But today we're continuing our focus on the London mayoral election on May the 6th with the latest of our interviews of the candidates. Now, Dr Peter Gammons is UKIP's candidate. He's a motivational speaker, an award-winning best-selling author, and he joins us now. Dr Gammons, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, uh, thanks very much for inviting me. Can I ask you then, first of all, a basic question, what can you offer the people of London? I'm fighting for everybody in London, and I feel that the, especially working-class Londoners are being neglected. They're not being consulted. It's almost like a fake election because uh, the BBC have given 10 hours each to three left candidates and given me three and a half minutes. It's like they want these people to win. I'm the one that's fighting against further LTNs. I'm, I'm the person that's standing, trying to stop the expansion of congestion charges because it only penalises poorer, poorer people who can't afford to go out and buy a new electric car. I'm fighting for the cladding victims. I'm the person that's standing up fighting for the working class. But all of the people that they're promoting are, have this Marxist agenda. And so um, I'm, I want to get police stations restored in every community. I want to see the police out on the beat. I want to have truly affordable housing instead of what they call affordable housing. Bailey's pushing for this part ownership, 100,000 houses for 100,000. I'm looking at 100, uh, uh, between 100 and 200 derelict sites to build starter homes for young couples in London. I have so much to offer London, so many policies that people would support if they heard about it. But I'm beginning mm -hmm. to feel now that it's a bit of a fake election because, uh, for example, the newspapers, Metro told me they weren't going to cover my campaign from the beginning. And so they're pushing these, they're pushing Bailey, but of course, even the Tories appear to have abandoned Bailey. I was out the other day campaigning and 
they didn't even have any of his literature out. And so they're pushing just these three, the, the Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens, who share the same agenda. And so Londoners, how can they vote for you if they don't know about you and don't know what you're standing for? Everybody well, who's seen my policies and campaigns says they'd vote for me. Well, speaking of which, um, look, UKIP was uh, crucial, obviously, in Brexit. With that issue now gone, what does UKIP have to say to voters? Uh, what about well, post-Brexit London? Yeah, absolutely. That Post-Brexit and, and, and post-COVID London are so important. And I believe that London needs rescuing. The thing is that UKIP was not a fight just about Brexit. UKIP was about democracy. We stood up to the elite at Westminster and forced a a referendum. We said the people need to decide, not the politicians. And that has been the history of UKIP. We've been fighting for democracy. We've said the people decide, not the politicians. Because, for example, up north, there were Labour candidates who, who were who were voting leave, but all of their, their all of the, the members of their constituency wanted to, to 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 leave, and they were voting remain. And so UKIP has been about standing up for ordinary working class people and saying um, the people need to decide, not the politicians. And the same thing is happening now with this election, and it's very sad to me. That they're, they're, they're just promoting three people with the same agenda. Well, they're not or, or, letting people know the options. Sorry. Yeah, all right. Well, we, we, you're on. You're on Bloomberg Westminster. We're giving you a platform. Um, Thank you. So I let me just that. say, okay. Let me ask you then, in specific terms, what would you do, for example, about transport for London, the crisis of transport in in London? What would you tell voters that you would do in detail? Well, the first thing I'd do, I'd look at what's efficient during lockdown cars kept the trains running all the time when they're empty. I, I've done a few of my Twitters where thank you for my own private train and my own private uh, station. They could have cut four out of five of the uh, journeys and still no one would have waited more than 10 minutes and they've been able to socially distance. It's ridiculous that Khan's paying half a million pounds salaries to people for a business that's failing. It's something like four billion journeys on the London a transport for London network a year if it doesn't make money something is seriously wrong he paid well, but hang on a second on, on that let me pick you so up on that yeah. issue yeah. the transport yeah. for London in in the UK London is one of the few big cities where they fund TFL via ticket sales that's not true in other places and a lot of campaigners say that that is the fundamental problem and that the pandemic has, has sort of broken TFL because people have stayed home, had to stay home. But now the kind of government needs to answer that sort of question. And that's going to be about the relationship between the London mayor and central government. Well, Khan always makes excuses, but the reality is he's wasted billions and is wasting billions on all kinds of things. What was it like, I suppose, 100 million on taxi rides for and coffee machines for the for, for the staff, all these bicycle lanes that is put in, which is causing the congestion and the pollution in London. So uh, Transport for London is a broad network, and, and Khan has bankrupted it. He bankrupted it before COVID, used COVID as an excuse. If somebody make Transport for London work with the billions of users a year, then something is wrong. Uh, it's only government-run things that, 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 that run at a loss. I'm sure that if it was privatized, and I'm not pushing for it to be privatized, but I'm sure it was, it would make a profit. But it's run so inefficiently. As I said, there's so much waste. Khan is wasting billions uh, and then blaming COVID for it. So, um, All right.
Well, let's yeah. let's move on to a different subject, which is also very key. We know that for a lot of people after uh, the, what happened in the last few months. What about safety and security, especially for women and policing? How does that all work together in a way that's going to do the best for Londoners, uh, male and female? Yeah, it's so so important that Khan has said that women are not safe on the streets. We need to do far much more. And these L- LTNs that they're putting in are, co- are one of the causes of the problems because now women are having to be dropped off. Instead of at their home, they're having to be dropped off on main roads and walk sometimes through dark roads to get to their homes. There's so much more that needs to be done. I, I want to put 8,000 new police in. I want to put police on the beat. I want to reopen police substations in every community, which is so important because so many crimes are not getting reported now because uh, people have to go online, fill out forms, or, or, or by the time the police get there, it's, it, it, it's, it, the event has taken place. Take Chiswick, for example, with the vandalism that's going on there since they closed down the police station. It's so important that the police are there, that we have police where there are danger areas, that we have more CCTV cameras and all kinds of things so that, that, that we can do more to protect them. We need to do more for youth. We need to open youth centers in every community. Mm. There is a direct correlation between, between the closing of youth centers and, and violent knife crime and gang culture. And um, so, so there's a lot more that needs to be done. I, have, I wish I could cover it all in, in the short interview, but, but, but I have many, many plans, so many and plans. In, and in terms of funding for those plans, I mean, funding for police on the street and also um, you mentioned housing. Again, the idea of how that is funded, building all of these new homes that London does obviously need, you know, how would that, how would you manage to do that? Yeah, well, there's a number of things. Number one, of course, I've cut tons of the waste, billions of waste that Khan, Khan has at the moment. Um, one of my, one of my uh, more adventurous things is my, my London lottery. Uh, I've already set up a London lottery where all the profits go back to projects in London and uh, where we make new millionaires in London every week. But that's just one, one of the side issues. Uh, we, we need to use developers that, that are not just interested in building a few houses and making millions out of it. We need to work more with smaller developers. As I said, I've been looking at these 100 abandoned and, and uh, derelict sites and looking at putting up homes, uh, 100,000 homes for 150,000. Because the bottom line is you need to work with developers who are happy to make a little profit from the houses. But what we've done is we've built far too many luxury homes in comparison to affordable homes and social housing. And so we have these developers who want to make a quarter of a million on every single property. And and, uh, unfortunately, the Labour and Tory government, uh, the Labour and Tory councils are giving the contracts to these people who are just interested in themselves. We have to look at it. There's, There's acres and acres of transport for London land where we could focus on building affordable and social housing but take for example olympic olympic village they just built olympic village they just built luxury homes sorry Peter, well, yeah. let, let's focus. Let's just take one other thing. You, you are with UKIP, which obviously is very closely associated with Brexit. There are a lot of people uh, in the city of London uh, at, at all different levels who are losing their jobs to some extent because their jobs are moving to other parts of Europe, other European centres, because of Brexit, because of the issues to do with financial services. Uh, and that's caused immense problems. They're going to look at you and say, why should I vote for someone from the party that engineered all this, aren't they? Well, COVID's made a difficult situation. It'll be very hard, and, and it's only when we start to get back to normal whether we see whether it's been a benefit or a harm. There are, there are people who uh, believed in leaving the EU who, who have said that, that it's been better. There have been people who have complained, but it's very hard to make any comparisons when, when lockdown has been in process to see the benefit of it. 
And so afterwards we'll see. I believe it's beneficial. Look at the money we were sending to to the EU every every month uh, and taking away all of the uh, laws, all of the control from Britain. Um, Europe has not made been good in the way they've dealt with it. They've tried to punish Please. Britain, and so hopefully we'll get over that. Uh, they're trying to touch, show all the other countries, don't you think of leaving it, and, and, and made it very hard for us. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now we're going to have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start, Caroline, with vaccines. Yes, indeed. Uh, The needle is moving lower. People aged 42 and over in England are now able to book their COVID-19 jab. According to the health secretary, it comes just a day after the vaccine rollout opened to 44-year-olds. More than 33.7 million people in the UK have now received their first dose and almost 12.9 million are fully vaccinated. So very quick progress, Roger. Yes, it's going down the age list really quickly, isn't it? But of course, uh, there's one part of the world where things are not good at all, and that's in India. The government here is working with the US and the European Union to send ventilators and oxygen concentrator equipment to India as the country faces a horrific second virus wave. But the focus is now turning to vaccines. One of the countries with the highest vaccination and lowest case rates, Britain, can, or its British ministers, can now uh, consider what further steps they can take to help people in COVID disaster zones such as India. Mm. Meanwhile, there's a parliamentary committee that wants all fixed penalty notices for COVID lockdown breaches to be reviewed. MPs on the Joint Committee on Human Rights argue that the system is, quote, muddled, discriminatory and unfair. More than 85,000 fixed penalty notices were issued in England uh, from the start of the pandemic, 8,000 in Wales. The JCHR says that it had significant concerns about the validity of fines, the inadequacy of the review and appeals process, the size of the penalties and the criminalisation of those who could not afford to pay. So question marks over those fixed penalties for people who breached lockdown rules. Yes, I think that's going to open up a whole can of worms in various ways. Uh, Meanwhile, sanctions. Well, the government's imposed sanctions on 22 people involved in corruption cases, and that's as part of a new global crackdown on corruption. People from Russia, South Africa, South Sudan and Latin America have had their assets frozen and been put under travel bans. 14 of those facing sanctions were involved in one of the largest tax frauds in Russian history. And finally, Politico has written an interesting analysis piece, Roger, about uh, what's happening in the London mayoral race. They essentially say that for Conservatives to win London in the next mayoral election, they have to be out of power in number 10. They spoke to a slew of electoral experts who said that Tories have to lose control in the country in order to gain the top spot in the capital. The rule for parties on the right is generally that they must be in opposition nationally if they want to to win a big city leaves Conservative candidate Sean Bailey scant hope of winning City Hall uh, from Labour's incumbent Sadiq Khan next month, at least according to Politico.
Yeah, and if you want a full list of candidates going for London Mayor, londonelect.org is the website. You can get them all there with their platforms and a full idea of who is contesting that. But let's now talk about what happens to accessing politics when you're deaf or you suffer a hearing loss. Now, it was a point raised very effectively by Vicky Foxcroft, Labour MP for South Lewisham and Deptford Boroughs and Shadow Minister for Disabled People. She recently asked the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's Questions in British Sign Language why there was no BSL interpreter attending London attending government COVID briefings, Karen. Yeah, well, joining us now is Rob Geeney, who is Head of Campaigns and Public Affairs at RNID. Great to have you on the programme, uh, Rob. So, look, um, there are millions of adults in the UK with hearing loss who, who use um, hearing aids who need British Sign Language. And so this was rather effectively put that there was no sign language interpretation in um, in the COVID briefings that we've been watching so attentively. Um, this must be a huge issue for your community yeah absolutely as you say there's millions of people across the uk roughly 12 million who live with some form of hearing loss and there's well over a hundred thousand people who will use british sign language as their primary or main language and those people have been excluded from key information during this pandemic i think we've all relied on government briefings and government communications to know how to protect ourselves how to protect our family and how to do the things that we all need to do as a society to protect the NHS. And so much of this information just hasn't been accessible during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it does seem really odd, because obviously if you look at Nicola Sturgeon's briefings in Scotland, she has signing going on. A lot of the briefings that go on around the world i'm thinking canada the u.s again there are very often signers involved certainly there are in new zealand have you raised this with the government have the rnid approached them and asked them why boris johnson's are not dealt with in the same way yeah so we worked um, with a number of other organizations to make points about the accessibility of government communications in the specs of the interpretation for government press conferences specifically i think This time last year, we still didn't have any provision of BSL interpretation, including on the headline announcements, which announced the first lockdown. And we did work, so we wrote to the Prime Minister and we worked with the Cabinet Office to raise points about accessibility. We saw some limited improvements. So the government do now work with the BBC to ensure that there is sign language provision made on the BBC News 24 channel. But that's the only place where sign language can be accessed. And therefore, there are still huge parts of the deaf community that don't know where to find the accessible information and are left out of that key source of information and advice that they need to look after themselves. Yeah, and and the RNID, the Royal National Institute for, for Deaf People, is the national hearing loss charity, but... What do you think that it says about, I suppose, the, the government's strategy when it comes to disabilities within the UK? There, there must be a lot of question marks. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it symbolises the fact that too often disability and accessibility are an afterthought. And I think this is true of government and it's true of lots of other parts of society. And I think it's quite clear here that the government has designed a response to the COVID pandemic. And then once they've done that, they've tried to tack on accessibility almost as an afterthought. And I think what we try to argue the government should do is to have a, a checklist of accessibility measures that they need to take and they should work through those as they're designing the mainstream um, response and the mainstream communications. So we've worked together with RNIB and with other sensory loss charities to provide a checklist of a whole host of things that governments should do on all of their communications 
not just the broadcast, but things like subtitling social media content, making sure that written updates and the letters that went to people who were shielding are translated into BSL. And we've encouraged the government to really proactively follow through that checklist and make sure that everything they do is covered by the provisions we suggested with other charities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, do they sort of say why they haven't done this? It seems such an obvious thing when, when you ask it, and, and, and we are so used to provision being made for accessibility and so many other things. Big companies do it, of course. Why does the government say, well, we can't afford it, or we haven't got time, or it's low on our priorities? What do they say? So I wouldn't want to speak too much to the government. I think it's fair to say that in the initial days of the pandemic, it just wasn't thought of. It was only considered after it was raised to them. We know that at the onset, the government said that the incidence of COVID within number 10, and obviously the Prime Minister had quite a serious um, bout himself, prevented them from wanting too many more people to be allowed into number 10, which I think just isn't good enough from our point of view. And we've also made the point that an in-person interpreter is only one way of doing this. It would be perfectly possible to have an interpreter outside the room, which every other broadcaster carries, and the information can be provided that way. So the government has plenty of flexibility in different ways of achieving this end if the means is there to do so. Mm. Now, there are three legal cases, though, uh, in connection with this that are being um, led by deaf campaigners. Does that include the RNID? Do you support that, that there should be legal action taken taken against the government in order to get this provision, as you say, sort of made routine? Um, We haven't been directly involved with those legal proceedings. I think it is brilliant to see the deaf community self-advocate and to take these steps and we hope that that is part of the process of making the government change back. Um, We've taken a slightly different approach in terms of influencing and trying to convince the government but as I say anything that works I think would be a huge step forward for the deaf community across the UK. Rob, just walk us through some of the problems that deaf people have had during what's been a challenging time for all of us. I suppose the thing immediately occurs to me is if, if you're a lip reader and people are wearing a face mask, it can't work. Yep, absolutely. So I think when face masks were introduced last June, that was the number one issue that was brought to us through our information line and through our social media channels. And as you say, of those 12 million people across the UK with a form of hearing loss, many will rely on lip reading or utilise facial gestures to just pick up clues and context for the conversation they're having. Um, Lots of people have brought this to our attention and we're aware that in a survey we did last summer, around two-thirds of people with hearing loss said they were actively avoiding public places and public spaces through the fear that their communication needs wouldn't be met and they wouldn't be able to go about their daily business. And so we have been increasingly worried about the risk of loneliness, isolation and the exclusion from society for people with a hearing loss face. And again, we've worked with the government. I think when the government introduced face coverings, they did provide exemptions for many disabled people. But I think the point that's often overlooked with face coverings is that it's not an exemption for the deaf person that makes a difference. It's the fact that the rest of society and the people they're trying to communicate with are wearing a face cover. So we did a lot of work to ask the government to check those rules. They have said within the guidance on face coverings that where people can remain socially distanced, it's fine to temporarily lower a mask to communicate with somebody with a hearing loss. Mm. Um, I think there's more to do to make the public aware of that, but it is one of those communication tips that the public should understand and appreciate how to communicate with people with hearing loss. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio. 